So welcome to New Books in Critical Theory, which is a podcast that's part of the New Books Network. On this episode, I'm talking to Professor Richard Williams, who is a professor of contemporary visual cultures at the University of Edinburgh, about his book, Why Cities Look the Way They Do. So welcome to the podcast. Oh, welcome. Well, thank you for the invitation. Lovely to be here. Um, This is a really interesting book, uh, really wide ranging. like very uh, global, both in, uh, I think it's kind of use of examples, but also in its ambition, really. Um, And I got a sense of that with, I guess, what is the underlying thesis of the book, which is an attempt to kind of reframe how we think about um, cities. Um, And this comes through really strongly in in the idea of we shouldn't think about cities as being designed, um, but we should think about them uh, through processes um, and the place to start with the book is is where that kind of idea of thinking about cities uh, and processes came from and and what sort of motivated that uh, that thinking as, as a way of understanding cities yeah no I mean it, it's a really uh, good question and I I think probably the best thing to start with is to say that I'm, I'm by no means the first person to do this I mean I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm working in a in a tradition of, of people who every so often, um, think about cities in in this uh, sort of context. So there, you know, there are people that um, listeners to the the podcast will know about. I mean, um, uh, for for example, as uh, Melvin Weber in nineteen sixties, you might know about, who's uh, thinking about cities very much in a kind of network um, context. Or there's um, Bernard Rudovsky, also mid mid sixties. So there are all sorts of people that I can think of. There, there are lots of. Um, People from the the, um, the the 60s in particular, and uh, I think what I wanted to escape from was, or felt that I needed to to reassert, was the idea that cities could somehow be designed. And I, I think partly um, that was to do with the the academic context that I work in. So I'm, you know, as, as you know, I'm in the, the art history uh, department, and we we tend to think about. Um, design in in a broad sense we think about authorship in quite a traditional sense whether it's works of art or architecture or design or whatever so so we have that huge tradition uh, to work with um, and it just seems that every so often you need to reassert this idea <laughs> i have a, an, an acute sense of partly through lived experience but just partly through um uh, the kind of reading that I've done, an acute sense of the the, the need to to say this. So every so often, that the fact that uh, we we can't design everything, there are, there are limits to design. The, the authorship is is fundamentally um, distributed and uh, multiple uh, in a sense where we're all the, the authors of the cities that we live in. Um, so in, in a sense, that there's a uh, there are all of those things uh, going on. There's a kind of there's a politics to it as well. And I, I think I've, I've always been um, drawn to accounts of cities that, that have um, emphasised lived experience as much as anything else. So uh, you know that's partly uh, you find a lot of that in mainstream uh, architectural discourse if you know where to look. But also I've, I've read and done a lot of work on, on Brazil over the years and, and Brazilian. Architectural and urban discourse, you know, necessarily it has to be about the fact that, that, that cities are very hard to design. In, in that context, um, the, the, the institutions that, that would allow cities to be designed are weak, civil society is weak, 
Um, there are all sorts of things going on that are almost impossible to control. So a- any sort of account of cities in that kind of context ha- has to accept them uh, as being unruly, undesirable, process orientated. I mean, b- before we get into the actual uh, processes that you, you highlight, uh, the other thing that struck me, you know, you mentioned kind of personal experience mm. a couple of times, w- was the reflexivity of the book talking about the potential kind of limits of the analysis. Mm. Uh, yeah. And, you know, you talk about John O'Ree's tourist gaze there. Yeah. Uh, and this links, I, I think, as well to the, and it's difficult to do this on a podcast, but, you know, the, the sort of visual uh, mm. and based um, forms of analysis and so i'm quite interested to know actually a little bit about where you position that sense of um, how far you can go with uh, focus on process and, and visual uh, analysis and, and where there might be kind of limits to what you can do with that yeah i mean i i was acutely conscious of the the limits and what you, you know you bring up the idea of the tourist gaze which is a you know concept that that, that many of us have um used in uh, you know in my case quite a superficial way but a kind of um useful way every so often i, I was acutely conscious of the the limits of the, the project and you know i'm a, um i felt that in in uh many of the situations that i was describing i, I really was no more than a tourist and the, the, the best that i could do uh was just to accept that and, and uh position myself as a tourist and, and say that that uh, you know, it's no substitute for for being absolutely embedded in a place. But then, of course, you know, what are you going to do? You, you only have one life. <laughs> There's only a limited amount of time. So, um, uh, I, I felt that once I'd positioned myself in that way and, and accept accepted the the limits of it, uh, then it allowed me to make some transnational, transcultural um, comparisons. And you know, ultimately, a lot of the processes that I was describing. Uh, were and, and are global processes, and, and I, I wanted to uh, to be able to say something about those. Um, but yeah, it was a it was a book of, of limits in, in all sorts of ways. I mean, but thinking about the, the tourist um, position, um, what well, one of the places that I was oddly most conscious of that uh, was Leicester, which is where my my children now live and have been for a few years, and it's a, a city I've got to know quite well. And it's quite an important figure uh, in the book. And, and I felt that um, it, it was a place that was sort of uncannily familiar in some ways, even though I, I didn't know it until recently. But it was also a place that, that I, I was uh, absolutely a tourist because the, um, the, a lot of the, uh, the situations that I was trying to describe or trying to encounter were, were to do with, with uh, populations who, whose uh you know origins and economic and cultural links with with um uh with the indian subcontinent and uh the, you know i was like, acutely aware of of um, how far i could engage with that but i was also curious about it and i wanted to try and say something about it so so yes limits <laughs> limits were very important and it's a short book too you know it's only um 70 80 000 words or so i mean you you mentioned the kind of global uh nature of of many of the processes that uh, you try and analyze in the book. And uh, I mean, the, the really obvious one is transnational flows of capital. Mm, yeah. uh, and uh, you, you pick, I mean, throughout the book, there are a range of examples and, you know, we'll, we'll only touch on, on a few of them, but I think thinking about some of the architecture of the city of London juxtaposed with 
um, you know, the kind of moment of a contemporary concern with inequalities mm. was a really good way of starting to think about how processes shape cities. Mm. Uh, and I wonder maybe we could pick out uh, some of the, the discussions of, you know, people like Piketty and then mm. uh, how these, in some ways, kind of fascinating uh, architectural um, almost event-style buildings have have taken place in London, but also how, you know, the particular sort of grotesque nature of how much a square foot is worth in, in the upper regions of, mm. of an institution determine the shape of both buildings and cities. Yeah, I, I was was fascinated by money. I mean, I, I have a, um, a kind of amateur um, knowledge of, of economics. I mean, I, in another life, I think I'd like to have been an economist. <laughs> So, so I'm a kind of self-taught um, person in, in that regard. But I'm, I'm fascinated by it because in, in the, the context I was writing about, which was cities that basically self-identify as global, m- money was in so many ways the, the key driver for things. And, and it seemed to be the, the thing that was uh, making the biggest impact on, on the skylines of cities. So, you know, if the, if the main question of the book is why cities look the way they do, you know, think about the uh, the transformations of, of say london and the the skyline is is has been completely transformed by the, the movement of of uh, a certain kind of free-flowing capital in in the last um, decade you know certainly since the financial crisis so i was fascinated by by those things um i think uh you know uh, um trying to get a a grip on how it might be different or how it has been different in, in the recent past. Um, Piketty was uh, an interesting read, I and mean, I, can't, I can't claim to be um, any kind of expert on that, but I, I did read um, Capital and got, got quite a lot out of it. And in particular, I got the idea, uh, this, um, uh, this, this formulation, R, R is greater than G, in, in other words, um, accumulated wealth with a return on accumulated wealth uh, is greater than economic growth, uh, and that's a very suggestive um, formulation in the book. Uh, uh, and it, it, you know, the more I thought about that, the more I thought it it, it, um, it explained something about the the skyline of global cities, where you know there, there was um, say you know reasonable economic growth, but nothing spectacular, and, and yet the 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 form, the the outward form of those cities was becoming more and more spectacular and the amount of capital involved in producing that spectacle was, was really huge you know and uh, i um so for example um i mean one uh place that i started thinking about this i suppose was, was uh, somewhere that, that didn't particularly make it into the book but it, it, it was manchester which was you know a city that i you you know well well enough. I, I know extremely well. But there was something that that happened. Um, I suppose in the uh, I don't know. It must have been about two thousand five six, where suddenly it became possible to do really big buildings, and it, it was really a phenomenon that that had nothing to do with the size of the city or, or even the size of the economy particularly, but it had everything to do with confidence and, and the sudden ability to attract global capital. So when, when I left that city, I did a PhD there, um, when, when I left it, 
uh, a big building was, I don't know, 50, 60,000 square feet. Um, and then not very long after that, a big building was basically 10 or maybe 15 times the size. So, so the, basically the, the imagination of what was big had, had changed in, enormously and you know, really not explained by the, the size of the economy. You, know, you weren't looking at an economy that had got 15 times bigger. Um, so th- that was really my starting point. And so the, the, um, uh, many of the examples that I looked at are, are examples of, of buildings that are um, just you know, huge in, in relation to um, the, the, the size of the, the economy in which they, they sit. And I'm particularly interested, and this is a sort of related, slightly different point, particularly interested in the the growth of uh, buildings which seem to be almost entirely for investment. Um, So uh, one of those, the the most spectacular one, uh, was this pencil-thin, extraordinary tower uh, in Manhattan, 832 Park. Avenue, so right, right in the middle of, of Midtown, um, by uh, a Uruguayan architect called uh, Rafael Vignoli, who's, who's done a lot of work in, in, in Britain, including the, um, uh, the, the, the notorious uh, walkie-talkie building. But the, 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 the Manhattan building, this uh, 832 Park Avenue, is a building that uh, it's incredibly tall. I, mean, I, I forget how many stories, 70 stories, something of that, that order. Um, it is all residential. Uh, the apartments, you know, start at ten million, something like that, and go up to as much as you want to pay. And, but even the developers seem to think that it, it would never be occupied, or practically never be occupied. So this this extraordinary piece of real estate, you know, a major thing on the on the skyline, it, it didn't really matter whether there were people living there, as long as people owned it, it was it was fine. And you know, you know that that phenomenon. Uh, in, in London, pretty well. There's a, you know, famously or notoriously, there's lots of um, apartment buildings that have been put up in the last uh, 10, 15 years or so, which you know appear not to be occupied. They're kind of ghost um, cities, but it, it doesn't seem to matter because as long as they're owned, they're, they're, they're doing the, the job. So they're basically safety deposit boxes, and that that, you know, that phenomenon. Um, you know, many people have written about it, but I, I wanted to try and try and summarise it and put it in a in a useful form. It, it seems to be what, one of the most distinctive things that, that has happened in in cities in the last uh, last decade or so. I mean, the, the the other thing bound up with with money is power, um, mm. and you know, uh, it's quite early on in the book, you, you kind of set out money and power as mm. as critical, and and to an extent. This is almost sort of uh, territory that we'd expect a discussion of um, the contemporary city to to be comfortable with. Mm. But more, I suppose, kind of provocative and interesting is the idea that um, sexuality and, and to a, a kind of related extent, gender would, would have a, a kind of key role as one of the processes mm. of the city. And I guess this picks up on um, some of your, your earlier work in a, in a previous book. Mm. Uh, and I, I was trying to think about the best way to formulate the question. <laughs> what did you tell me about sex in the city? Because yeah. phrase. Um, but you, you know, there is, there is something really fascinating. I think in terms of your analysis of how sexuality shapes, um, say, you know, districts in cities, for example. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I am fascinated by this. <laughs> uh, you know, there, there was some. Um, 
you know, I, I, I tried to um, explore this um, yeah, about was it five, six, six years ago. To, uh, there's a book called Sex and Buildings, which um, got, got quite widely um, read. And it, it, yeah, it's, it's a very interesting topic. It's partly because it, it's one of those peculiar transformations that, that's happened in, in plain sight. So I often find I'm, I'm writing about things that I've, I've experienced or seen um, transform before my eyes. And it, it, it just seemed um, very clear that, that um, cities, uh, as well as becoming uh, very conscious of the way that they look, a, a lot of the way that they look has been bound up with um, new kinds of sexual economy. Now, I think, you know, when I um, first started to think about cities, and I hadn't really thought about this at all, and I think uh, the only way that I could think about sex in relation to cities was in terms of the sex industry, or, you know, industries, prostitution, or whatever. Um, and I, I knew nothing about that, and I, I still don't. Um, but I, I, I um, got interested in, in the way that uh, sex and sexuality might be um, mainstream determinants of the way that cities look, and and, and very very simply that 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 arose that interest. It arose through um, living uh, well, when I was doing a PhD. You know, this is a long time ago, but uh, doing that at, at a moment when uh, when Manchester's uh, gay village was really starting to um, you know, acquire a, a presence, and it was being talked about, and it and it was. Uh, um, you know, something that that uh, seemed to be very attractive, and, and it seemed to be producing a lot of um, property developments as well. So, you know, that that was my um, my experience of it. I mean, I was very much on on the edge of it. You know, as a you know straight, straight man with a lot of gay friends, I, I was sort of uh, you know, hanging around there and sort of getting introduced to a, a, a world which I, I knew very little about until that point but it, it, it was kind of fascinating and it was you know, from all sorts of um, perspectives but particularly it was fascinating because it seemed to be in, informing um, the, the, the way that, that cities might look reproduce themselves visually so that that was my um, starting point for it and then I, I think um, I mean what I tried to do in the book is you know, reiterate some of that and, and uh, explore some uh, some things that have happened more recently, but it, it's it's definitely had an effect on on um, certain kinds of development, on on the the attractiveness or otherwise of of urban living. Um, yeah, I mean all, all kinds of stuff. The, the, the modelling of, of different kinds of uh, ways of living that might not be um, to do with the nuclear family. I, I don't know. There's all, all sorts of things that might go in it, um, and I, I feel that, that there are. Um, uh, you know, it, it makes sense to, to to talk about a sexual economy as well. And I, I think one of the things that I, um, I think I, I mentioned briefly, but is you know, the idea that that even when these uh, economies go online, when you've got dating apps and you know, Tinder and Grindr or whatever, that a, a lot of those are uh, orientated or, or fixated around around cities. You know. You're, you're, you sign up to any of these things, you you have to you have to say where you are, and it, you know it's quite clear that that, that sexual economies in cities are you know, bigger and more powerful, more attractive than, than sexual economies elsewhere. Now, those things are interesting. So you know, I, I, whatever happens over the next um, next few years, I think it's quite clear that it, it's going to be a powerful um, 
determinant. Interesting in it as a you know in terms of um, media representation as well. You know how important sitcoms were in in, in uh, creating that, that that idea or making that idea attractive. I mean, the, the other really obvious um, example of this um, is is the other side of the world and. Um, you know the Castro district in uh, in, yeah. in San Francisco, uh, mm. which is it's extremely different from uh, from mm. central Manchester in, in lots of different ways. Yeah. Yeah. And, and actually, al- almost the kind of the the most interesting juxtaposition isn't actually between uh, those two places, but actually it's between uh, this chapter and, and the next mm. and. The relationship between you know what is seen to be this kind of you know fascinating kind of liberal hippie influenced um, kind of uh, gay utopian um, part of the West Coast, mm. and then the thing that you you kind of develop um, as quite a kind of dull architecture of the creative industries of yeah. you know, bungalows and, and server farms, and, and I found that re- relationship really really interesting, particularly in the context when we're meant to think of creative industries as being full of, you know, reclaimed um, aerodromes and, you know, mm. uh, led regeneration and stuff like this. But actually what we're talking about is, yeah, multi-occupant bungalows and, and quite boring architectural spectacles. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're referring to Silicon Valley, really. <laughs> and, yeah. Uh, yeah, I... I um, I got very interested in, in Silicon Valley, and uh, you know, at some point, you know, maybe I'll do a much more extended um, project on it. But yeah, the, the way it looks um, is is very uh, interesting in in terms of its self-effacing qualities. I mean, at the moment, uh, it, it does seem to be going through um, something of a revolution where where Facebook and Google and Apple have all been investing in, in architecture and have started to. Um, uh, make themselves more spectacular, but basically the landscape of Silicon Valley is incredibly um, low key and um, reclusive, almost. Uh, uh, but it, it has these bizarre characteristics. It's the, um, uh, I mean, money is in, in incredibly important. The the, uh, the the cost of real estate there is, is ludicrous. I mean, it has become absolutely ludicrous. Um, it's one of the most expensive places on earth, and yet to look at it, it, it is um, very bland and self-effacing and you know, ordinary. Um, yeah, it, extremely odd. Um, I, I mean, I, I really enjoyed the uh, thinking of sitcoms. Actually, I really enjoyed the um, uh, that uh, sitcom called Silicon Valley. Um, yeah, uh, I think beautifully done, and it's one of the things that has been really enjoyable about it has been the way that it, it depicts that environment and uh, uh, but I particularly like this this uh, you know bungalow turned incubator space where, where you have all of these these dudes all, all sharing this this uh, space that was designed for a single uh, family you know traditional family and they've turned it into the complete opposite and yeah, it's. Uh, I think it's a, a fascinating. I think that the whole world of work has uh, undergone some of the most um, severe changes, and, and that, that's informed um, the, the way that cities look more, more than anything. In a way. Yeah, and, and that again comes through in this creative industries uh, focus towards the very end of the book. The way that, on the one hand, we've got the reclaiming of spaces for 
for work um, and you know, productive activity, but also the reclaiming of spaces for, um, for I, I guess, I mean, it's not really leisure, is it, as much as, you know, there's the kind of um, exhibition and display mm. of artistic and, and cultural um, goods as mm. much as it is a kind of, you know, leisure and mm. uh, a sort of, uh, you know, you, you engage a bit with um, Frankfurt School and, and these kind of yeah. things. Mm. I, I got, yeah, I got I got very interested in in the uh, informal spaces of work. I mean, I, one of the starting points of the book was, you know, actually a few years ago, um, I, I w- was wondering whether it'd be possible to uh, to to start with the, the cafe as an example and, and the, the way that the the cafe and people sitting and young people sitting in cafes coding whether you could work outwards from that and what, what it would say about um the world of, of work and sex and cities and all of those sorts of things um so so i was very, very interested in in this this rather performative thing that that's that has happened with with uh, with cafes and you know, work and leisure and you know hooking up all, all sort of blurring into each other and um i, I think it's been quite um Quite corrosive in some ways. <laughs> I don't, I'm not sure I like it at all, but it, it uh, it's been a very distinctive thing that that's uh, that's happened. I mean, who knows? I mean, right now, of course, none of it's happening. So, you know, who, who knows what the future um, of that is? But it, it it's been very distinctive uh, that that kind of process and transformation. You know, and you know, thinking about how how um, cities how you know can't can't be designed at a certain level. I mean, no, nobody. Could, could really have, have predicted just how much um, coffee drinking is going to be going on and, you know, and how much that would define the, the, the look of cities at street level. I mean, it, it, it's really interesting because um, the book has also got an analysis of um, how cities you know, collapse and get ruined by war. But in some ways, what we're dealing with now is a similar kind of you know, moment of collapse, except... You know the infrastructure is um, is still there, is you know almost untouched, apart from the fact that we're likely to see, you know, precisely these important spaces of work, the cafe, mm. uh, not you know bringing the shutters up uh, once people start to kind of to kind of reemerge, mm. um, and I mean that that's probably you know uh, a kind of moment um, to speculate on what the book offers us right now, you, you, you know. Do you think we're going to see this um, process, whether we call it, you know, the coronavirus process or you know, lockdown as a process? What What do you think that means for the contemporary city? Oh, God, I mean, it's um, this moment is just extraordinary, um, and uh, it, it has made me uh, re- rethink um, or start to rethink pretty much everything I've been teaching in the last. 15 years and you know clearly it, it turns the, the thesis of the book on it on its head or at least it, it turns the book into into history you know, almost immediately um I, I think um just to say something about that i mean the the almost everything uh or, or that i describe as process you know in, involves um some kind of sociability you know so so much of the way that, that money circulates and you know, sexual economies work and work has been working in, in recent years has been to do with a, a very exaggerated kind of sociability and also density. You know, I mean, that, that was the thing that 
being the age that I am, I mean, I, I have become very conscious of of just how much denser cities have become and how you know density has become a, a value um, uh, and sociability has become a very very important value. I mean, th- those things have, have been so powerful. You know, they run all the way through any kind of process that you want to talk about. You know, culture as well is a key thing. So we, we, we're in a situation where, where basically we can't be sociable, you know, uh, and it, it just turns that whole concept of the city right on its head altogether. Um, so, so the question is, you know, is this a pause? <laughs> is this uh, a um, just a, a you know, temporary moment where a few things stop for a bit and then we we revert back to to um, how things have been in the last twenty years, or is it? Uh, a moment where things fundamentally change again. I, I have to say, I, I wonder uh, if it's the latter. Um, I, I think um, we we had this long period of the, the, the reassertion of the, the dense city, and you know, there's, there's been almost like a, a Victorianization of, of cities in, in the most uh, developed and ri- richest parts of the world, and and, and of course, the, the emptying out of cities in in the uh, you know, the middle of the 20th century, and to to an extent before that, the development of the New Town movement, things like that. So, so many of those emptying processes were to do with the fear of disease. You know, uh, so you know, if we become afraid of disease again, if sociability becomes um, something that that needs to be um, measured, you know, uh, controlled then we're going to be into a very different realm and different kinds of cities will, I would have thought, quite soon start to become attractive. And it doesn't necessarily mean that they have to be uh, you know, low-density suburbs or whatever, but I think we, we might be seeing different kinds of ideas of cities becoming uh, more attractive. You know, new towns. I, I can see the new towns starting to become... Um, coming back into favour again. I, I, I don't know. Um, it depends very much how long it goes on, doesn't it? You know, I mean, at, at the moment we're, we're just a month into it, uh, but you know, three months, people's behaviour might start to change. In terms of what next for you, I mean, it sounds as if there's a really rich kind of you know social distancing, lockdown, Corona book to be written, uh, <laughs> precisely with this kind of process based analysis or. Mm-hmm. You thinking in terms of something very, very different? Um, well, I mean, at the moment, I'm, I'm finishing up a, a book on the architectural critic and historian Rainer Banner, and uh, I mean, the point of that uh, is is really to try and bring um, Banner to a slightly wider audience. I mean, he he, he was a uh, he was a big deal in the in the 60s and 70s, but basically in the in the architectural world. But I, I think a lot of what he was he was um, saying and speculating about. Is, is very transferable. Um, and he, he would have been absolutely fascinated by this moment. You know, he, he was somebody who was always thinking about the future. Um, I mean, is it slightly related to him? I, I think one, one question, and which may produce a bigger project, but it, it, a question that, that really interests me is, is about mobility. And so, so one thing that is definitely happening, uh, if I can actually get there, <laughs> is, is a... Um, uh, a, a stay in Brazil. Um, so I'm, I'm going to spend, uh, in theory, next year three three months in Sao Paulo, which is a city I, I really 
um, uh, love to love to visit. And the reason for going there is that uh, they have had a, um, for for some years uh, a project that has closed down uh, the the central motorway that, that circles around the, um, the central part of the the, um, the, the city, the, the core, the historic core. And this motorway is called, called the Mignocan, or the, the big word, great, great word. Um, and at night they close it down and it's, uh, it becomes this, this impromptu park. And it, you know, all human life is there. It's just fascinating. And uh, I've spent uh, enough time there to know it's a really good, um, good thing to, to work on. But what I'm thinking of working on, basically, in a larger scale context, is, is what happens to, to mobility, really. When if we we've lived through a period of where we, we expect a huge amount of mobility, but what, what, what if things don't do that? You know, what, what if like, like the Minya Khan at night, we, we start to um, slow things down? If we start to re- reinvent the infrastructure and mobility that we've got, um, what if we we can't fly everywhere? I mean, I I don't know. Not not quite sure where this is 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 going exactly. But the, Sao Paulo is is far from alone, and and. Uh, there are many cities that have done things like this, and there's a sense in which we've got this infrastructure that's been all about people moving about at high speed, um, freely, all of that. You know, what, what, what if we, we, we have to rethink that? And, and you know, the, the obvious uh, connections uh, now with the, the coronavirus situation.